Welcome to episode 222 of the Cyber Law Podcast. That's a third of the way to 666. Brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and today I'm joined by our guest interviewee, Megan Stiffel, uh, founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants, uh, uh, cybersecurity policy at uh, director at Public Knowledge uh, and uh, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Uh, uh, Megan, welcome. Thanks, Stuart, for having me. Okay. And uh, for the news roundup, uh, Brian Egan, and we're going to ask Megan to weigh in on some of this stuff, <laughs> but uh, Brian Egan, a Steptoe partner with our international practice, uh, formerly uh, top lawyer at the State Department and the National Security Council, uh, and Gus Hurwitz, who's a uh, professor at uh, University of Nebraska School of Law. Gus, welcome. Great to be here, as always. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and having returned to Steptoe and Johnson to practice law at least five times, but nobody's counting anymore. Uh, all right, why don't we jump right in? Uh, uh, I guess the top news story is the continuing story of ZTE. They went back to the market, uh, and it turned out they're worth uh, almost 40% less than they were <laughs> when uh, this uh, uh, mess with their uh, uh, compliance uh, problems uh, began. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Congress and the administration seem locked in a certain amount of conflict over what to do about it. Brian, mm -hmm. where where does that stand? Mm -hmm. So you, you'll remember that President Trump tweeted that there no, has to be a, a solution to the ZTE problem to put the ZTE personnel back to work. Uh, Commerce uh, then uh, about two weeks ago came out with a superseded order that imposed some pretty significant new penalties on ZTE, over a billion dollars in additional penalties uh, that ZTE must pay. They've got to fire their entire board and executive suite. Uh, they've got to agree to a very uh, draconian set of oversight uh, monitors. Uh, and so that went into, uh, or the order came out about two weeks ago. Uh, Congress is not happy about this, so there is an amendment to the NDAA that uh, may... This is an amendment from... Um the, it, it's a, it's the Chuck Schumer uh, Tom Cotton uh, amendment. Uh, uh, sort of odd bedfellows in this one. That's right. Yeah, uh, Van Hollen is a key player on the Democratic side as well. But they have an amendment that would uh, make uh, the old penalties stay in effect and not allow the new penalties to come into effect unless the president were to make a couple of certifications. Uh, under the amendment, uh, one of which is that ZTE has not violated U.S. export control laws for the past year, and secondly, that they're cooperating with any ongoing U.S. government uh, investigations. And the, the president, uh, or at least the White House, has said they don't much like this. But uh, what I was struck by is um, it's not clear that this language, that this provision is actually going to have the effect that uh, Senators Schumer and Cotton and Van Holland, uh, uh, Representative Van Holland, uh, think it uh, will. Uh, just looking at the language, it says the executive office of the president may not modify a civil penalty, but of course, 
it looks as though this penalty was modified by the same people who imposed it in the first place, uh, the Commerce Department. So it may not even apply. And then the certifications, if I'm reading them right, uh, say, uh, uh, well, you can't have violated the law, the extra export control law, within the last year. And the last violation, even if you're pretty generous, uh, is uh, about assigning blame for a violation, was of July of last year when they sent in a report that was later characterized as, full, as, as containing falsehoods. So as of July, it's been a year since they did anything that uh, the Commerce Department objects to. I'm guessing that they'll be able to certify this as soon as this bill passes. Uh, it's certainly possible. They made some minor adjustments in the NDA amendment, but they have not changed the two key things you just said, Stuart. So, uh, and, and as you noted, the last publicly reported violation of U.S. law was this July 2017 letter. So uh, it may be just a matter of having the president or the Secretary of Commerce kind of put their money where their mouth is and make the certification. Uh, right. And ordinarily you'd say, well, they can fix this in conference, but uh, they're going to be trying to keep it in conference, not fix it. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, the House is probably going to be less enthusiastic about this because they're closer to the president, the people running this. Uh, and so um, won't be eager to make it even harder for the administration to certify. So this may turn out to be one of those fights that isn't as big a fight as it sounds like. That's certainly possible. All right. Uh, well, a fight that uh, in retrospect turns out not to have been much of a fight was the AT&T Time Warner merger where Judge Leon just said, yeah, whatever, sure, sounds great to me. Gus, I, I are there lessons to be drawn from this other than that you should always want Judge Leon in your uh, <laughs> uh, merger cases? Uh, yeah, I'd say uh, rumors of antitrust theft have been greatly exaggerated. Um, so uh, Judge Leon didn't just say, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, he said, hey, government, uh, you roundly failed on every single element of this case to convince me in any way. Um, the big lesson of the case so for, for background, uh, uh, the case uh, was a vertical merger, and this is the first judicial tra uh, challenge to a vertical merger in decades. So a lot of folks have been watching this case to see, hey, what's going to happen? The government's uh, not decided to step in and try and block one of these things in a while, and they failed. They failed roundly. But uh, the big thing, uh, the big lesson for me from this merger um, is that the government needs to do a much better job with its evidence. So the judge in this case didn't really attack the theories of the case or the models that the uh, government tried to use to show that the transaction would be harmful to consumers. Uh, remember, it's the government's burden to prove to the judge that the transaction will harm competition, not the party's uh, uh, burden to prove that the transaction will be good for competition. And instead of uh, looking at uh, problems with the law, the legal standard, or the models the government was using, the judge really said, okay, these are complex models, and they have a lot of inputs. And depending on what those inputs are, the quality of the outputs have certain robustness. And every single input that the government found and uh, uh, put into their models, the judge said, you know, there's a big range here, and you haven't convinced me that your assumptions are right. So if uh, the government wants to challenge these transactions in the future, they're going to need to do a really good job, not just relying on anecdotal evidence, but really strong, hard uh, econometrics and economic evidence. And it's hard to do that in these vertical merger cases. I think that that sounds like the lesson. We're already starting to see other communications companies say, hey, uh, me too. 
Yeah, the, the, the mergers that we're seeing um, really were uh, waiting to see what happened in this case, because if it had come out the other way, this, uh, it would have been very, very easy for the government to challenge these transactions. I think that would have been the dramatic outcome in this case if the government had won. The government losing this case really is maintaining the status quo. So that's where the risk that companies uh, were worried about really was. All right. Um, so the NDAA, which has the CTE amendment uh, about whose effects I'm a little skeptical, uh, is moving forward. It's also going to contain, at least on the Senate side, uh, uh, the CFIUS reform bill, which is a very big deal for those of us who are CFIUS lawyers. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, is this really going to pass and what's it going to do when it passes? I think the chances are pretty good that this is going to pass at this point. The, the CFIUS reform legislation, which is known by the acronym FIRMA, has been in the works for almost a year at this point. Uh, this is a very unusual example of bipartisan uh, agreement on legislation from national security perspective. There have been markups in all the key committees. So this is kind of going through the usual process in some sense. The the main effect would be it would expand the jurisdiction of CFIUS in a number of significant ways. The the one that has dropped from the current version is maybe more, more noteworthy than what's still in there at this point. Um, one of the key concerns has been identified is the ability of U.S. companies to transfer technology outside of the scope of a CFIUS deal, outside of the scope of an acquisition of a U.S. company by a foreign company. And the original version of this bill would have brought all of those transfers, by and large, within the jurisdiction mm-hmm. of CFIUS. Now the bill acknowledges uh, that export controls actually uh, provide a lot of authority to regulate those tr- technology transfers already. Well, especially if what you're trying to do is t- regulate conversations between engineers, which is hard to do with CFIUS uh, and in theory, uh, though not in practice, uh, easy to do with export control <laughs> deemed export rules. And that's true in theory, but not necessarily in practice. Also, what this would do would regulate technology transfers that currently aren't subject to export control, things that have not been identified by the Commerce Department or the State Department on the export control lists. This would require commerce and the interagency to kind of dig in, identify the areas of most significant concern, and actually control those areas. So some have said this is something that's been decades in the in the making. Others say commerce has been trying to do this for decades, and it's really hard. Yeah, well, partly because, of course, that process has become utterly sclerotic because of all the interests that have to be represented or feel they have to be represented, many of whom don't want anything new on the list. (laughs) Uh, And so it's not surprising that uh, they're looking for a new way to come up with this. Uh, I was struck by the idea, you know, we we all look at the Chinese uh, 10-year plan, uh, whatever it is, uh, China 2025, uh, um, uh, for all the technologies that they want to acquire one way or the other from the West uh, and develop into an autarkic uh, system uh, for China. Um, you know, the national defense strategy kind of has the same thing, a list of the technologies that uh, the Defense Department thinks are really <laughs> critical. Uh, and my guess is what we're going to start seeing is uh, as we compete uh, in many places with the Chinese, uh, the tools we use are going to look a lot alike. And here's one where each side is going to have its list 
of technologies that uh, the other side can't have and uh, that they want to preserve. Uh, um, and so if you're looking for guidance about where you're going to have trouble in CFIUS, uh, that list may be the place to start. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not a bad thought. I mean, the other thing that's uh, the, the Defense Department and the Treasury are trying to do through this is to encourage other countries to create their own CFIUS-like processes, which may be uh, words of welcome to CFIUS lawyers who are growing up around the world, but is not necessarily good for direct investments around the world. Yeah, although it it, it may be good if 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 the Aussies or the Canadians or the Germans come up with their own coordinated approach to what technologies they're going to try to protect, uh, uh, they may find a lot it a lot easier for their companies to buy stuff here and for us to buy stuff there um, as the world breaks down again into two warring blocks. Yeah, that's true. And in fairness, that's, I think, what the intent is here. All right. Um, so speaking of um, uh, warring blocks, we know what side the, China, the uh, Russians are on. And it turns out that uh, increasingly people think they know what side Kaspersky is on. Uh, and uh, it's not just the U.S. government now. The European Parliament overwhelmingly passed this uh, not, not particularly binding document. Uh, nonetheless, it, it was scathing about uh, uh, Kaspersky as a uh, – uh, basically a malicious actor in cybersecurity. Uh, uh, Gus, uh, um, I, I thought Kaspersky's reaction told us maybe more than the uh, original resolution. Yeah, so I am not sure that the characterization of the EU Parliament really being intentionally scathing towards Kaspersky is right. It almost uh, looks as though uh, they incidentally said, hey, Kaspersky is a great example of software that is problematic, that we're saying we shouldn't be using. Um, and it's really just that one statement that triggered this backlash. And Kaspersky said, hey, wait, that's not cool. Uh, we have all these great partnerships that we're doing, and we don't like what you're doing. So they pulled out of these partnerships and pulled out of uh, the European Union, perhaps uh, uh, in advance of the, binding the non-binding resolution um, leading to actions that would push them out. I find it really fascinating. Um, two weeks ago, we spoke about uh, Kaspersky uh, in the U.S. being basically kicked out of the country. And the response uh, uh, then, Stuart, that you gave was, well, they still have a lot of business in the European Union. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, uh, what this suggests is that they've been standing on a uh, bar of soap all along and didn't know it. Uh, 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 yeah, I think that this means – it may take a while, but their market penetration uh, in um, the West is just, you know, on a long withdrawing roar, uh, to quote uh, uh, John Dunn. Uh, and, and they, they'll do fine in the other block, but um, my guess is that they are going to have more and more problems as it becomes more and more PC to, to describe them as malicious. All right. Uh, now, speaking of malicious, it uh, turns out the Chinese are back uh, hacking for cyber uh, – for people's uh, trade secrets. Uh, uh, again, kind of using as a shopping list that China 2025 uh, um, uh, list of technologies. Um, uh, but it sure looks like 
they are engaged in commercial cyber espionage. Um, maybe trying harder not to get caught. Uh, maybe uh, looking for a limit, more limited uh, set of things. But uh, uh, Megan, uh, um, does this mean the complete failure of the Obama Accord or some variant of that? Possibly. But I'd right. like to be optimistic and think of it as a not the end of it. Um, so yes, I think it, there, we're seeing reports from a couple of private sector uh, security vendors that suggest that um, China is back to its old uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures. Perhaps they've learned a few things about not being, I think, drunken burglars was the way they were once described <laughs> by a now former director of the FBI. Um, and I think a number of others, yep. but it, it does appear that that China is is for some reason, and I don't. I think that's the the million dollar question, right? Is what's what's causing them to suddenly come back, or why are we suddenly seeing more of this type of t- activity? And some are speculating it's because of this kind of tit for tat trade uh, conversation. You know, we we need them for a lot of things, and so it's it's will this become part? And I think. Some in the administration have been pretty outspoken about saying that, that some of these sanctions are a result of this uh, type of activity. But whether others in the administration will echo that sentiment and try and drive the message, you know, the amplification of the message a little bit more, I think remains to be seen. And that, that's, I think, where we saw progress last time we had this conversation was as the stakes got higher – I think the president, a couple, then President Obama called them out a few times, and then we ultimately ended up with this uh, there indictment. Were un- there were some indictments. That's right. So. Uh, and then we had the the 2015 accord. I guess we'll call it. Is that yeah. right? Do I have my years right? Um, so it sure seems like an op- it's, a, it's time to have another conversation about what's going on here. And the question will be: Will it be a private conversation, or will it play out in public again? One question. Play out on Twitter is my guess. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> Brian, uh, uh, you think the accord is dead or just resting? <laughs> uh, I I kind of agree with uh, I agree with what Megan said. I think it's uh, it's there. China's used it as a model with other countries, yeah, so I think right. they've actually bought into this. Uh, a little bit more than just with the U.S., and they're going to have maybe a bigger problem if we can show that there are holes in the accord. Uh, so yeah. I think it's it's still got on life support. It, if the administration, the current administration, is interested in using it and salvaging it and potentially building on it. Yeah, they, uh, you're right. Uh, a um, An adept, an internationally adept administration would be going to a bunch of other countries saying, here's the evidence of this. These guys are, are doing it to us. You should look to see if they're doing it to you and then we should all get together and agree on uh, how to uh, sanction them. Uh, I'm not sure that's what this administration is going to do and I'm not sure that uh, anybody's going to answer the phone if they try. But uh, I, uh, yeah, my guess is that the uh, Chinese government's instruction to its um, cyber spies was one, you're working for somebody new now, uh, not those uh, boneheads at uh, the PLA. Uh, so uh, there's going to be more discipline about what you do and you're not going to get caught. Uh, so they they may have failed in that second effort, but my guess is that they're trying hard to get, not to get caught. There's some value in having them trying hard not to get caught because it makes them less um, uh, uh, Less likely to steal everything, just you know what the hell. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, this is going to be a long-term problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, 
EU content filtering. Uh, we don't usually talk about this, but the uh, – uh, and I don't usually say anything nice about the EFF, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, they are complaining along with a bunch of other uh, 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 civil society groups uh, about the EU requirement that says um, anybody who has a website, it needs to filter uploads from their users to make sure that the users are not infringing anybody's copyright. This is a massive undertaking, and uh, even the com companies that do it, like Google, YouTube, uh, do it badly enough that they're constantly um, uh, taking stuff down that they shouldn't take down. Um, a, and so it is cutting off speech, imposing liability. It's a It's a a bad public policy to turn something like this over to a private actor and then say, and if you do it wrong one way, no what, no harm, no foul. If you do it wrong the other way, we'll impose massive liability on you. Uh, I, we all know what those incentives uh, turn out to be. The EU is pursuing this and so apparently not going to change the rules because they've gotten enthusiastic about any form of content regulation of big tech uh, from the United States, as far as I can tell. Stuart, between this and uh, GDPR, it sounds like uh, walled gardens are the way of the future. I that's, think that's uh, probably the right. European approach. Yeah, yeah. And if you thought there was like, oh, well, you know, those those content guys worried about protecting their copyrights and their uh, trademarks, you know, they, they have a sense of social responsibility. There are some things they won't do. You only have to look at what the Spanish Soccer League did. It, it gives you access to an app that, I don't know, tells you, you know, scores or something. And it also turns on your phone, collects audio in the bar that you're in to see if maybe the bar is playing the game without having uh, uh, paid the, uh, the fees. Uh, and then it geolocates you using your damn phone uh, so it can send people out to bust everybody who's listening illegally to the game. I, you know, I just love that. Uh, and of course, it's all GDPR compliant because they say, oh, by the way, you know, we need access to your phone and G uh, uh, location and uh, uh, audio. Uh, and everybody just says, yeah, okay, it sounds good to me. Uh, um, so I, I, I just love big copyright. Okay. Um, a U.S. sanctions, this is interesting and I don't know how, what to make of it, but I think people in Silicon Valley may find it interesting. The U.S. has been sanctioning Russians for cyber attacks and those sanctions have now reached companies that I think most people in Silicon Valley think of as their companies. Uh, uh, a, a, a couple of them, uh, I think ERP Scan was one of them, and uh, what was the other one? Demdi? Uh, um, uh, and uh, it, it seems to me that those guys um, uh, are showing that this process of breaking up into blocks is going to be a long and painful one and that a lot of assumptions that people have made uh, – oh, and Betty um, – that people have made, well, we're all tech guys together, uh, you know, uh, um, bros under the skin. Uh, it's uh, it's going to turn out that a lot of the companies that people think of as part of the Silicon Valley community are going to end up on the other side of that block. 
it's just also interesting, too, to see the administration continue to use the cyber authority against Russian actors. Yeah. It's different than the narrative that you often hear about the administration's approach to Russia. Uh, I, I'm guessing they just don't tell the president. <laughs> <laughs> or they say, oh, those Silicon Valley companies, oh. don't worry, sir, they didn't vote for you. <laughs> I... <laughs> okay. Once the president listens to the podcast, Stuart, it's all over. <laughs> all <right. laughs> Luckily, uh, this has not been uh, – uh, Fox and Friends is not authorized to rebroadcast this podcast. Uh, okay. Um, Gus um, – you said you wanted to talk briefly about the uh, Apple USB uh, stick it to law enforcement measure uh, in which they say basically if you plug a, a USB uh, cable into an iPhone and the iPhone hasn't been um, uh, logged onto within an hour, uh, we won't let you in without the uh, the password. Uh, I, and uh, uh, the assumption is that that was done to defeat law enforcement efforts to get quick access to uh, the phones. Uh, the fact that it'll be kind of inconvenient for uh, uh, Apple's users apparently is not as important to Apple as causing harm to the FBI. At least that's how I read it. But uh, uh, did you uh, see something else in that story that I didn't see? Now, Stuart. We both know that Apple's justification for this is the bad guys who are stealing people's phones rampantly, not the FBI that they're trying to protect the phone. Oh, wait, from, is there anybody in I this room? Is there anybody in this room who's had a phone stolen and the contents extracted from it? I, you know, I, no, it doesn't happen. Yeah, and there are there are other technologies that can be uh, used in those cases. Um, uh, remote self-destructs and wipes, uh, uh, for instance, of the phone. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, the really interesting, the fascinating thing is the cat and mouse game continues here. So USB restricted mode, Apple uh, thread into, and then they said that they are implementing it. And one of the uh, uh, big forensics companies uh, has said that they've already defeated it. Uh, uh, Grayshift, I think it is, says that they've found a bug in the implementation or what's not. So their software is going to be able to uh, bypass this uh, USB lockout feature. Um, so uh, the, the game continues. Um, it's hard not to think of the game as just a great big uh, a bunch of deadweight loss. Um, it sure would be nice if uh, the engineers and uh, encryption uh, researchers on both sides were to spend more time uh, researching how to actually uh, do productive encryption instead of uh, cat and mousing each other uh, to mess with the FBI. Yeah, I, I think it's just personal at this point. Uh, 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 Tim Cook is not going to let anybody say that they can get into an iPhone on behalf of law enforcement. Uh, and um, even, you know, he's going to uh, do it no matter how inconvenient it is for his users because he wants to be uh, um, on the side of privacy. That's my guess. But uh, And uh, fascinating question tying into several things we've uh, spoken about so far uh, on this call. What's Apple doing, and what are other what are other Silicon Valley uh, firms doing with other countries to uh, cooperate with and comply with uh, law and other regimes? Yeah, uh, well, you know, my guess, whatever they have to do to, uh, to to keep their sales, and in the case of China, worked, which is at least the second, maybe the largest market for uh, uh, Apple. My guess is that's a fair amount. Okay, well, I look, I have good news. Um, a, a, a first uh, uh, um, 
one of my targets gets its comeuppance and then I get mine. Um, Southern Poverty Law Center, which I ranted about uh, one or two episodes ago, uh, and they really are just, you know, as, as, as somebody uh, says in the article I'm about to cite, uh, uh, you know, keepers of uh, lefty orthodoxy, uh, um, which they achieve by smearing everybody to the uh, – um, really to the right of George W. Bush is my guess uh, – as racist, bigot, uh, hate speaker, um, and uh, since Silicon Valley just says, oh, yo, whatever you say, I guess we should uh, uh, boycott them, um, they're immensely um, influential. They did this, however, to the wrong guy. They did it to a guy named Majid Nawaz, who is, in fact, himself a former Muslim extremist who is now working to fight Islamic extremism. Uh, and of course, that's not PC anymore. Uh, 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 and uh, uh, so the Southern Poverty Law Center called him a bigot uh, and a hate speaker and words to that effect. Uh, and so he said, you know, I, I, I'm a Brit. You know, we've got uh, real uh, libel laws in this country uh, and I'm going to sue you. And he went out and crowdfunded a lawsuit. Uh, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, when they finally realized uh, that he meant it, uh, said, oh, okay, how about this? How about we unreservedly uh, um, uh, withdraw our uh, statement that you belong in the field guide to anti-Muslim extremists and we give you $3.37 million uh, uh, so that you can uh, go on with your research into uh, 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 Muslim extremism and uh, anti-Muslim bigotry uh, uh, and we apologize. And so – these guys have $200 million worth of uh, uh, reserves that they've set up for a rainy day. You know, it won't take more than 75 such um, settlements to um, have them convinced it's a rainy day. And uh, boy, it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of uh, orthodoxy enforcers. Uh, uh, so that's uh, the SPLC's comeuppance. Here's mine. Um, Tim White, who's the senior deputy county counsel in the county of San Diego, said, you know, that Cipre, Cipre thing that you uh, uh, beat down poor Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff over, uh, uh, you know, I liked it too. I thought it, I always thought it should be Cipre because that's how you pronounce C-Y in French. Uh, so I went to Garner's Dictionary of Modern, Modern Legal Usage. And uh, uh, it listed both C and Cypre as perfectly acceptable. And uh, so I wrote to the uh, to Brian Garner, the author of Garner's Dictionary of Modern Legal Usage, and his uh, 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 research assistant sent me the following. We are currently working on the 11th edition of Black's Law Dictionary, so your timing is good. Professor Garner is editing the entries in Black's and Garner's Dictionaries of Legal Usage to reflect that Psi is the traditional anglicized pronunciation and that C is a repatriated French pronunciation. Um, in other words, it's something that only snobs use and they made up the business that it ought to be pronounced uh, C be to show off that they once took French in high school. She didn't quite say that, but that's basically what she says. Uh, I apologize unreservedly and will give Jennifer Quinn Baraldinoff $3.37 uh, in uh, uh, compensation. Uh, 
All right. And uh, last, um, I just wanted to uh, uh, get Gus to give us the bumper sticker version of the new paper that he's uh, the co-author of on modern privacy uh, uh, issues. Uh, uh, we don't have too much time because uh, we got to let Megan talk about her paper. But uh, um, uh, tell us about the, uh, the give us the elevator speech for this paper. They're all hypocrites. All right. Is uh, that enough? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, th- 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 this is a, a short piece that uh, Jamil Jaffer and I did for uh, uh, the FedSoc Regulatory Transparency Project. Uh, it's kind of kicking off a series of privacy-focused uh, short pieces. Uh, th- it's really a, a look at, at a number of examples of privacy issues where things come out backwards or the privacy concerns seem to undermine themselves or have just changed over time. So my favorite example is caller ID. Back uh, when caller ID in the early 90s was first proposed, um, all the privacy groups uh, that are on the front lines today who are arguing for things along the lines of you have a right to know who's trying to contact you and people can't use your information without uh, a disclosure and all the standard privacy things, they argued that caller ID was a violation of uh, privacy rights. That the idea that someone would, uh, that I need to disclose my phone number in order to make a phone call, uh, was problematic. And nowadays, I think most folks would say, wait, someone wants to call me and they're not telling me who they are? No, that's problematic. So it's a, a little exploration of uh, a few quirky areas of privacy law that really show privacy is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and, uh, well, and maybe a little a more, more you know, I, I, I would say, Part of this is that the essential business model of privacy campaigners is to free ride on Luddite resentment. Uh, you know, new technologies always produce a certain amount of resentment. Uh, and um, if you're a privacy campaigner and you can uh, heighten that resentment, you might get a bill out of it. Uh, that you can use for a variety of other purposes not currently anticipated uh, uh, a, a, for years to come. Uh, and it doesn't always work. In fact, most of the time it doesn't work. But every once in a while, they'll be able to scare people into thinking, oh, my God, this is really terrible. We need a law against that happening. Um, a, and what your paper shows is sometimes they get these laws and it turns out to be really stupid because our expectations of privacy adapt much faster than the law does. Yeah, when you're talking about what information uh, companies or individuals can disclose or can remember, that's a lot of power. So when you do get these bills, when you do get legislation, even when you just get public sentiment on your side, you're getting a great deal of power over information. All right, Megan. What's the what's the elevator speech for your piece for the for public knowledge? FUD doesn't work. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So, okay, I'm with you so far. <laughs> right. I think um, so. Essentially, what we this is an effort to, as the title tries to portray, change the conversation around cybersecurity. I think most of us would agree that we hear the word cybersecurity and consumers sort of go glassy eyed and lawyers and anyone aside from a security vendor sort of goes, ugh, 
there's a collective groan around cybersecurity. So what we're trying to do is, is stimulate a conversation by not necessarily directly calling for regulation, mm-hmm. but to say there's an opportunity here for companies to start to compete on the services that they provide, the security, the security of their products, whether it's a service or an actual consumer product, and for consumers to not be uh, required to be the sysadmin of their home, but where they where they have enough information, which there's a big caveat there, right. where they have enough information, they are in a better position to make a better choice for the, I will call it an internet ecosystem. You will probably no, no, I, put I me with the Southern Poverty Law Center or something. But, no, um, no. You, you, essentially, you have to go a long way to get good, that. Good. We're trying to change the narrative and give people a chance to, to feel like they are somewhat empowered in this space where we know some consumers, a lot of consumers maybe feel like woe is me, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to keep clicking that damn link until I get to where I want to go. Right. So um, then the part that you did not spend too much time on because you were sure I was going to mock it as political (laughs) correctness is uh, you're drawing an elaborate analogy to sustainability as a a movement. Uh, And the theory, if I understand it right, uh, is um, there are a lot of externalities in this in, in in this field that is to say uh people buy stuff they buy it uh with one use in mind if it um they don't recognize the ways in which it can hurt them or hurt others say uh, uh and so they don't take those into account and that's also true when people are buying uh you know uh, uh tuna that also killed dolphins or whatever uh, the uh, uh sustainability issue du jour is uh and so you're 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 hoping that sustainability successes in jawboning uh, individuals and companies into doing more about these ecosystem problems uh, could also be used for cybersecurity. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So the, yes, the analogy, the thought that you, you don't have to be afraid. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> um, the thought is that there are many parallel, there are many lessons that can be learned from the sustainability movement and as a tool to change corporate and consumer behavior that might also apply in the context of cybersecurity. Of course, I think we all know that there is no perfect analogy in cybersecurity. They all break down at some point. But um, the hope is that we can start a conversation around um, whether we can start to think a little bit more sustainably about the ecosystem, which might mean we're not developing a consumer product that is absolutely no security baked in and is suddenly turned into part of a botnet and is you spamming need, one you of need, your clients. You, 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 um, need, you need... You need uh, Cuter victims, I think. You know, what's the equivalent, the cybersecurity equivalent of a polar bear that doesn't have an ice flow? Uh, that's what you need, uh, uh, because you know, saying, "Oh, please do more about cybersecurity, or Sony will be attacked again." You know, I'm I'm not sure that's going to get you very far. Yes. So the the it's not a direct analogy to necessarily environmental environmentalism, but the. Um, as the paper talks about, there are – first of all, the, to your point about externalities, the Council of Economic Advisors report back from the spring talks – identifies cybersecurity as a, as a public good and identifies the, the significant amount of externalities as a consequence of, of inadequate cybersecurity. So we are not necessarily thinking about identifying the um, – I don't know, the poor – 
person who doesn't have access to their social media account as our poster child, rather thinking about um, – we know that a number of exchanges, so publicly traded companies have to talk about their ESG ratings, environmentalism, social, and governance. And so adding cybersecurity as an element of either one or all of those, because in fact, the argument here under sustainability is that cybersecurity enables not only sustainability practices, but also sort of the, the ongoing operation of the internet ecosystem as an interoperable so let me, let me, medium. Let me then. take it down to something very concrete, because sure. I think uh, – um, we talked about router security yes. a, a while back and um, router security turns out isn't very good and um, and insecure routers are a lot more dangerous than we thought, not just uh, in terms of DDoSing people uh, uh, but in terms of doing man-in-the-middle attacks mm-hmm. and extracting all the information you might need to uh, drain people's bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What's interesting about routers is that uh, unlike phones, unlike computers, they don't have some big um, uh, oligopolistic uh, provider mm-hmm. who can extract enough rent to give you security uh, or at least spend a lot of time on security. Uh, uh, they don't have a Microsoft. They don't have a Google. They don't have an Apple providing the operating system. Um, so – how does treat it's clearly an externality too right you, you you buy your router you buy the cheapest router that gives you what you want and you don't think much about the consequences for other people and maybe not for yourself so how does bringing a sustainability model to that world change the outcome by so i think we another useful part of this analogy is the supply chain concept so right. if i'm a large internet provider, which I'm no longer – we promised Gus we weren't going to talk about net neutrality. But um, I only say that by – use that by way of saying – so if I'm an infrastructure provider, if I'm a tier tier one provider, I don't – I can say potentially to my consumers, I will give you this router mm-hmm. and you may use it or you may choose from these four other ones, which I've already assessed the security of. Otherwise, you don't get to get on my network. Okay. Um, so again, it's sort of thinking about um, – Thinking about things from a as a uh, both a life cycle perspective, but also a spectrum of actors in the space. So there is a responsibility along the spectrum from the consumer who needs to make better choices to the company who's producing the routers who needs to not who can follow our nice handy list of if you're a product manufacturer, uh, which is at the back of the paper, some best practices that they should follow. So essentially, the idea here is everyone should follow the best practices that's relevant for their space in the ecosystem. So then the ISP says. Okay, so I get a warm glow, uh, and uh, uh, public knowledge says nice things about me in a press release. Um, and then I spend a year fielding angry calls from people whose modems, the modem that they bought at uh, Home Depot, doesn't work mm-hmm. on my network because I won't let it. Are you sure they're going to do that? Uh Possibly. Okay. Um, so one qu- option, of course, is yes. So part of what you're talking about is incentives, right? What's yeah. what's the incentive here for AT and T or some other entity to want to fo- to endorse this process? Um, well, among other things, it lets them get a leg up maybe on their competitors. Um, but maybe AT and T or the government says, you know what, it will give you a discount, a rebate, a tax deduction, like we have in the mm-hmm. Energy Star context, for you to get rid of that piece of junk router that maybe was shipped with a hard-coded password in it, um, which hopefully we've 
we're getting there. But so we need – there's a lot more to this puzzle. we got a ways puzzle. to go. <laughs> we, do have a lot, we do have a ways to go. But that was part of the, the primary purpose of the paper was to start a conversation and stimulate dialogue in part around, among interesting bedfellows. Okay. Uh, so um, last set of questions. Um, one of the things I worry about when we talk about regulating – Cybersecurity is – you didn't say regulation. OK. So I – and regulation has lots of problems. One of the problems is it takes forever, right? Um, but the only thing that takes longer than regulation is coming up with a list of best, yes. best practices and publicizing it, getting everybody to sign on to them. Once they've signed on to them, they're not going to want you to change them. They're not going to want you to say, oh, yeah, we've got uh, version 3.01 of our uh, best practices includes something to deal with this new man-in-the-middle attack on your router. Uh, that, that's just – you know, you, you're, you're going to – Get people signing up to stuff that is going to slowly fall out of date. Uh, how do you deal with that? So I think – do I take from that then that you're not a fan of the uh, cybersecurity fr- framework? So the cybersecurity framework is not a set of rules. It's a right. set of terms for talking about how good your security is. That's what we're intending by the paper. It's not to say you must follow this particular regulation or this particular best practice. It's to say we would expect that you would, for example, have a salute, a, have something that you're doing on this. Yes. Demonstrate that you are contributing to the ecosystem rather than taking from it. So, and the, here are a set of examples of where you might be contributing. You're publishing, you know, that the NTIA is about to undertake a software bill of materials process. Right. So, so, you I, follow a software so bill of you, you talked about that a couple of times and I have to say I only half understand what that is. What is a software bill of materials? So first of all, you have to get into the lingo. It's called an uh, SBOM, software bill of materials. That's mm-hmm. apparently the way that's being conceived, constructed. Uh, gotten Stuart's interest. Uh, yes. As you know, I'm a lawyer, not a, an overly technical person, but the rough, the rough uh, description is in some ways it could be poorly analogized to a nutrition label, but it's I undertook the following processes in developing this software mm-hmm. um, so that when someone, uh, a procurer decides that they're going to procure software for a particular thing, they can say, did you do this, that, and the next thing that I know are more, to use the phrase, sustainable practices in developing <laughs> software. Um, but essentially, it, it's basically a guidepost to say, rather than just saying, please, you know, develop an app for me that that allows me to. The other day, I was thinking we need one that tells parents the best driving routes to get their children to go to sleep in the car. Oh, I um, like that. <laughs> yes, that's right. So I might. Uh, the folks will kill me for saying describing s bombs in this way, but um, did is your app going to suck my location information down? Is it going to turn on my mm-hmm. uh, microphone? Who's it going to disclose my and route that's all to? All bill of materials. Well, it could include those types okay. of things, but um, I think it, the reality is it's much more technical than that. Um, and because I cannot code in any other language than English, and not even that, um, I can't get into the details. But okay. essentially, again, these are. Among other things, it's a set of taxonomy. It's a way to make sure that we're all speaking the same coding okay, language, right. um, which then I think offers greater confidence in acquiring a piece of, in this case, software, that it's not potentially something that is going to be polluting. Um, it's something that's going to be promoting. All right. So um, what's public knowledge going to do with this paper and with this idea? 
So um, we are, we actually this morning had our first roundtable, which is a little bit later than we expected to, but Mother Nature got in the way. Um, by that, I mean the weather. Uh, we are looking for partners to, to really, I think we're going to be targeting the consumer IoT space and thinking about, we're working on another um, paper around where there may be useful opportunities to deploy something like the Energy Star concept, if at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, to your question of, is the framework the right, or my question about whether you think the framework is a useful tool, uh, I think we'll, we'll, we're going to be looking at whether, um, you know, some, some have recently called for uh, an IoT framework similar to the existing critical infrastructure framework. Personally, not for public knowledge, personally, I think there's, that's worth exploring. Um, it is not a regulation. Right. Uh, and I think there – the, the world is full of best practices for yes. IoT. Uh, uh, the, what the world needs is some way to make sure people actually follow them. And yes. it's not clear we're, we've stumbled on that yet. Right. So looking at ways that we can try to incentivize better uh, behavior around both from, from consumers but really from companies that are making products that they put out to the consumer marketplace. And hopefully we may have some um, – different partners to help us in that path. We'll All right. See. So and so the next thing we'll hear is some kind of announcement about either additional um, uh, meetings or actual agreements to, to move forward on particular topics? Pro- hopefully both. Oh, excellent. Okay. So All right. We'll see. October is our target to do something additional. All right. At least so, one thing. I, well, we, uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I promise not to uh, spend too much time making fun of it. Uh, 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 and uh, uh, thank you to Megan Stipple. Uh, uh, thanks to Brian Egan uh, and Gus Hurwitz for joining me. This has been episode 222 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please don't forget, uh, uh, if you've got a guest interviewee, uh, uh, we will send you a highly, a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug if you uh, manage to get your uh, interviewee suggested uh, interviewee on our program. Uh, send that uh, those suggestions and uh, any other comments to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Uh, I'm not sure my ego's quite recovered, but uh, in a week or two, you can start uh, critiquing my uh, my usage uh, uh, and calling me a, a grammar snob. But, uh, you know, give me a, give me a week off, please. Uh, um, if you want to hear your voice on the show, uh, call uh, 1-202-862-5785 and leave a message. And if it's really entertaining, uh, particularly entertainingly abusive, uh, we will definitely play it. Uh, and rate the show. Go to uh, iTunes, to Google Play. Leave comments, reviews. Say nice things if you can, but say something because that's what it takes to get uh, uh, other people to find the show. We have a lot of upcoming guest interviews Let's see. Uh, we're going to have uh, uh, Matthew Waxman uh, and Duncan Hollis. We'll be talking about their uh, uh, later approach to cybersecurity, which involves using PSI, which is the Proliferation Security Initiative, which nobody but me really loves. Well, actually, Brian, you probably love it, uh, uh, but not many. Uh, uh, Bobby Chesney uh, uh, and Danielle Citrone uh, uh, are going to be talking about deep fakes. Mike Hayden, the... Uh, former uh, director of CIA and NSA is going to be talking about his new book, which is pretty entertaining. Uh, I don't agree with the 
about half of it, but uh, it's still uh, uh, fun. Uh, Woodrow Hartzog uh, from Northeastern University has a book on privacy. I really disagree with him. This will be a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Noah Phillips, New brand new FTC commissioner, likely to be doing a lot of privacy stuff. Uh, uh, formerly uh, worked for Senator Cornyn, uh, and then before that at Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, so it's going to be a f- fun to have him on uh, to do an interview. Kirsten Nielsen, uh, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, is going to come on as soon as we can get her on, uh, and. Um, uh, uh, David Sanger uh, from the New York Times uh, has a great story on Cyber Command, and we'll ask him to come on next week to talk about that. So show credits, um, Lori Paul, Christy Jorge uh, are the producers. Uh, thank you, Christy, uh, who's here. Uh, Doug Pickett uh, is our audio engineer, and he's here as well. Michael Beaver is our cybersecurity podcast uh, a cyber law podcast intern. He's here. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker. I'm here, as you can probably tell. Uh, and please, uh, uh, we're looking forward to you joining us again next time as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.